So welcome to Ordinary Life. Ordinary Life is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And no matter who you are or where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. First thing I want to do today is to um, <laughs> thank you for hanging in there with us uh, during this time. Um, <clears throat> and I want to thank Holly again for being willing to sit here every Sunday, we thought it would be something that would last for two or three weeks, and now it's going on and on and on, and even joking about the staying in with Corona is no longer funny. Yeah. But thank you for, for doing this. Um, you want to say something about donations? Yes, sure. So we, even though we're not in person, we are still receiving donations, and thank you. Um, our donations from this class go towards uh, nonprofits in the Houston area and beyond that are working to empower the poor and underserved. And on our website, you can click on any page of the donate button. It'll take you to a form. And on that form in the memo, you just write ordinary life as you make your donation. We are about two weeks away from giving away the money that has been collected this year. And if you have a nonprofit that you are engaged with, um, that you'd like to see some money go to, please go to our website and download the form that is a request for funds. It comes out on the constant contact announcement as well. And get it back to me, and we'll consider that for funds this year. When she says on the constant contact announcement, if you don't get our previews and summaries <clears throat> that go out on Tuesday mornings and Friday mornings, Go to the Ordinary Life website, and I think there's a box you can click that will say subscribe. If not, you can send an email to me, and we will take care of it. Um, <clears throat> I want to thank um, William. William Budge, who's running the show by himself right to, at the <laughs> moment. Tim Leatherwood is walking back and forth between where we are and the sanctuary building, making sure that St. Paul's services get streamed. So thank you, yeah. William, for what you do. You want to say anything about our podcast? We also have our podcast in between that comes out on Thursdays uh, by about 9 or 10.30. And we, it's sometimes Bill and I talking. It's sometimes Bill and I with a third person. Um, and we just explore the weekly themes and kind of where we are in time and space. And um, you can download it from our website or from Apple iTunes podcasts and listen. They're fun. We think so. I mean, we're fun to listen to. So <laughs> do, you, do we want to answer any questions about our clothing today? We will. Oh, okay. <laughs> but first, I want to say no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. Uh, all of us being um, pancake people, morning, you know, pancake people. Pancake, pajama, pajama mimosa, pancake. coffee. I have, uh, actually, the class made for me a set of pajamas. Mm -hmm. This is not them. <laughs> this is not them. Holly and I agreed. <laughs> Shall I stand up too? <laughs> if you want to. You're so much more outrageous than I am, but, I mean, look at this man. Tie-dye from head to toe and even has on socks that are... Mona Mona Lisa. Lisa. We oh, just man. threw a wrench in William's plan. He had to adjust the camera <laughs> for us to stand up. Um, well, our, our, our goal today is our intent is to boggle your mind. Uh, and we'll get into, into that because the title that we have given to this class today, and Holly designed this, is What Does the Color 7 Smell Like? This is a koan. Yeah. Like in Buddhism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're going to tell us all about that. But I thought I, I, I would do something to boggle your mind. Okay. All right. A magic trick. No. I'm sorry. A, m a miracle. A miracle. A piece of wizardry. Okay. <laughs> Other people do magic tricks. I don't do these. Yeah. So um, part of that, what I'm going to tell you, is true, and part of it is fiction. Okay. You can go on the Internet and check out. I'll tell you what part's true. This okay. is true. There was a man by the name of Carl Zinner. Uh-huh. has a Ph.D. from Harvard. Okay. In psychology. Okay. And he became the head of the Department of Psychology at Duke University. And Carl Zinner invented these cards. Mm -hmm. And they're called the Zinner cards. Mm-hmm. 
There are five in a cycle. Do you want to show other people what's on they can, them? They, mm -hmm. they can see there are five okay. in a cycle. And in the original Zinner deck, there are 25. There are five each, five times. Carl Zinner teamed up with a man named J.B. Ryan at mm -hmm. Duke University, who was also in the psychology department there. And they formed a special subset in psychology called parapsychology, mm -hmm. yep. where they tried to read people's, or see if people could read each other's minds by discerning what symbol somebody would put, take. Okay. So somebody would, would sit behind, on one side of a desk, somebody would sit on the other, and they'd think of a symbol, the other person would try to read. Okay. And they had surprising high accuracy. Until people who researched the research saw that the people who were receiving the signals could see the sign reflected in their glasses or in oh. their pupils or some motion in their face. So they eventually put barriers between so you couldn't see. Okay. And the effectiveness rate plummeted. Mm. Take these cards. Okay. And I want you to go through them and pick one that is going to be your favorite. Do I hold it? Yeah. Well, you just think of it. I don't want you to... Do I mix them up? Oh, yeah. I can mix them up. You can mix them up. I want you to mix them up. Okay. But I want you to think of one. Okay. And when you have it, let me know. I have it. Okay. Now, if you think that you picked the card that 95% of the people pick, which is what you accused me of last mm -hmm. time... The Queen of Hearts. <laughs> I want you to change your mind. Okay. You so change I'm changing mind? my mind? Okay. Um, now, if you think that you pick the card that 95% of the people who change their mind pick, uh -huh. you might want to change your mind again. Okay. You just keep changing your mind until you finally settle on one okay. that you're satisfied with. All right. Got it? I got it. You got to stick with it. Yeah, I stuck. I'm with it. You're with it. Uh-huh. Okay, mix them up. Now, this this card that she's thinking about exists only in her mind. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, it exists on the card, too. It exists on the card. May yeah. I have them after you mix them up? So what? you don't know the order in which they are. Nope. Now, I'm going to ask you to multitask. It won't take long. Okay. But I'm going to show you the cards one at a time and assign each card a number. Mm -hmm. And I want you to remember the number that your card is. Okay. This is one, two, three. Four, five. Okay. Your card has a number. Okay. Right? Mm hmm That's what I want you to do. Let's suppose your card was number two. Mm-hmm. I want you to take two cards and move them from the top to the bottom like that. Okay. Whatever number your card is, take that many cards and move them from the top to the bottom. But you just moved one. I moved two, just to show you as, as okay. an example. Do I put those back on the no, top? Just, I just move the top. The yeah, and okay. I don't want to see. Just okay. tell me when you're done. Okay, I'm done? done. Yes. All right. Now, I do not know the card you've thought of. Okay. No way. Mm-hmm. You could know the order of these cards, but I have a way to deal with that. Mm -hmm. We'll mix them up. Okay. Now you don't know the order. Mm -mm -mm. Okay. A little hesitancy there on your part. Come up okay. Again. <laughs> Which cup is the <laughs> the pee under? All right. Yeah. Just to make sure okay. that nobody right. knows. Nobody knows. Okay. We'll mix them up again. Okay. Okay. All right. I don't know your card. Okay. I do. You don't know the order of the card. Nope. I don't either. Here, take them in your hand. Okay. Hold them face down. All right. I'm going to show you something I learned at Hogwarts. Okay. Give me the top card. Am I facing it up yet? No. Okay. Just give me the top card. No. Give me the bottom card. The bottom one? Yeah. Nope. Give me the top card. Oh, Lord. Nope. Put one card in each hand. Give me either one of those cards that you want to. Really? Mm-hmm. Change your mind? Nope. This is the card That's you want. the card I want to give you. What was the card you thought of? Am I supposed to say it now? Uh-huh. The one that looks like waves? Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit of wizardry. Okay. To blow your mind. You okay. You did real good. You Thanks. Did I pass the test? You didn't say anything. Um, I mean, I still don't know how it worked. Miracles never make sense. It's wizardry from Hogwarts. <laughs>
can I say? So this is why we are dressed outlandishly and doing silly fun things on this Sunday before Thanksgiving. We're following our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and this is where we are for today. I love this verse, and especially the way that um, uh, Eugene Peterson translates it. Thanks for letting me read it, by the way. You're welcome. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? No, I'm going to put you on a light stand. Now that I've put you on that hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. I bet Jesus didn't really say generous Father in heaven. Father in heaven. Maybe he did. I don't know. Do you see the magic of what Jesus does here, though? You're about, I'm sorry, the miracle of what Jesus does here. So we're about to bring out the God colors. You are the color of God. You are both the reflection and an absorption of God by being you and no one else. So by being you, you reveal God and shed light upon the earth. I'll read the invocation that we read last week. It says, it was a dull and tasteless thing, this life before salt. It was a dark and meaningless thing, this life before light. So we're here to bring out the God colors in the world. And one of the things that I hope for this time together today is that you seriously consider this question. Is the life that you are living the life that wants to be lived through you? That's one of the ways to bring out the God colors in the world. And exactly in what kind of world are we to do this living? Well, for starters, close at home, it is a world with COVID-19 on the one hand and Thanksgiving on the other. And because of COVID-19, for the first time in my conscious memory, Mine we too. will not be spending Thanksgiving with um, other family members. While, while working on this um, talk this week, mm. it occurred to me, you probably knew this, but I did not know this. I didn't know why we said COVID-19. I don't know if I knew it or not, but it made sense when, when you wrote it down. Well, um, COVID-19 comes from squishing together the words corona, virus, disease, and 219. The, um, let's see if I can get this up here. This is what the pesky little thing looks like according to the scientists. The um, co in COVID comes from corona, the VI comes from virus, the D comes from disease, and the 19 comes from 2019 when we first discovered it, COVID-19. So far, COVID-19 has killed over a quarter million people in the United States. That's 10 times the deaths from car wrecks, crashes, strokes, suicides, typically in a full year combined. I read the front page of the New York Times today, and it's even worse than the statistics that I'm giving you. There are some people who still minimize this virus. I read that people in North Dakota, where the virus is at its highest right now in terms of infection rates, people are dying asking the nurses, what have I got? And they're in absolute denial when they're told they have COVID-19 because they have been convinced that COVID-19 does not exist. A lot of people minimize this by saying it's no worse than the seasonal flu. On the average, 42,000 people die from the flu each year. In less than 10 months, COVID-19 deaths have reached more than five times that number. Not only is it deadlier than the flu, it is more contagious. COVID-19 deaths are five times higher than death by suicide, and the researchers who look into this sort of thing are concerned that the number of suicides will be higher this year due to all the pandemic stress, the, the losses of jobs, the lag in education, too much time spent with uh, close time with family members, 
domestic violence is up, all, all, all of that sort of thing. Dr. Peter Holtz, and I started to put a picture of him up, but for those of you who haven't seen him, he's the viral uh, infection expert here in Houston at Baylor College in Medicine. He's a guy with the rumple hair and always wears the, mm-hmm. the bow tie. Mm-hmm. He projects that COVID-19 will kill 2,500 people a day in the United States in January. To quote him, what that means, practically speaking, is that COVID-19 could be the single leading cause of death in the United States on a daily basis. The consequences of COVID-19, of course, extend, as I've already said, far beyond death. Uh, There will be a lot of other fallout, economic, social, educationally. So on the one hand, part of where we are living out our lives, our lives of faith uh, in trying to understand what it means to be a part of and create an empowering community is that we live in the context of disaster. Another huge fact about our context is that we are immersed in a world of mistrust and fear and anger. We have a sitting president who lost an election with his opponents getting more votes than ever in recorded history. Actually, both the candidates got more votes than ever. And the outgoing president is telling not only the 73 million people who voted for him, but also anyone else who will listen that the election was rigged and that he is actually the winner. And sadly, many people believe him, causing us to have a chaotic transition from one uh, presidential term to another. And it's never, ever happened in this country before. And mixed in with this are the ongoing issues having to do with the systemic racism that's been a part of this country's DNA since before the founding of the republic. Now, I know that people who are watching this, ordinary life folks, um, you are an exceptional group of people. You're likely in the process, ongoing process, of learning about and being involved in anti-racist education and hands-on involvement. But we're being, we are in a unique moment in American history where we're being asked to choose what kind of love we have to offer to the world. And because we culturally, especially in our religious institutions, have had a history of conflict avoidance, I want to do my part to make sure that we do not see as a possible solution the ongoing acceptance of a system that is broken. The cycle of violence and destruction that have become part of our way of life, they're bad for all of us, no matter whether we are directly touched or not. And I think that living out the God colors are going to probably divide us more in some unexpected places in the process of bringing us together. They will divide us from false ideology and and our prejudices. But only by calling systems of violence to account will we, in the end, be set free. So I just want to be clear that St. Paul's and Ordinary Life are committed to an ongoing process of raising awareness and education about systemic racism and how we can be ever more consistently involved in matters of justice here. So that's just another part of the context in which we are to bring out the God colors in this complicated mixture of distrust and fear and and anger. Yeah, I mean, I want to be really real and tender with the difficulty of this verse right now. Many of us are confined to our homes. Some of us are alone and confined to our homes. We may be very weary of this pandemic that's endlessly stretching on, it seems. And many of us may feel overwhelmed by this particular moment in time, both politically and socially, when it feels like we're powerless. Some of us are fatigued by how this particular moment in time is challenging us. We are made really weary, I think, by confronting and being confronted by racism, health inequity, and more. If you are fatigued and lonely or off balance, 
give yourself some real compassion and grace. I think this could be the entirety of a daily spiritual practice. Tara Brock likes to talk about placing her hand on her heart and reminding yourself that you are loved and you're doing your very best. Most of us have never been through a global pandemic. So they ran out of the how to maintain your joy without drinking too much and giving over to despair during a pandemic that also includes a national reckoning with racial injustice and possibly schooling your kids from the dining room table handbooks. Did you make that up? Yes. Just as we got to the front of the line, they ran out of these handbooks. That's wonderful. Well, it's true. <laughs> I didn't get mine. <laughs> um, we're building the boat as we navigate these waters. There are some really wise voices from history to call upon, some sages in the night we can look to. Do you know that etymology of sage? It relates to salt, which we talked about last week. It is rooted in the Latin sapere, which is to have good taste, to be wise, from the root sap to taste. So it's characterized by wisdom. I love that it has to do with what our wisdom tastes like. Wisdom equals tastiness. So this week again, in a typical fashion of me, I said that these bracelets used to kind of make me giggle, but I'm asking this question, what would Jesus do in this particular moment? For starters, I don't think Jesus would stray from talking about the hard stuff. I think he would keep turning our hearts and our minds toward racial justice, economic crisis, immigrant abuse, how disproportionately COVID affects indigenous Americans and other people of color, and I also think Jesus would pause to feed and gather and nurture and breathe. Attending to issues of the heart, attending to social issues is exhausting because things don't seem to change fast enough. The ocean is so big and our boat is so small. I'm hoping this time today will be a little bit of a balm an opportunity to nurture our spirits as we continue to low our heads and do the courageous work of building what we would call the beloved community. I hope the politics of joy can be a kind of resistance to despair. Jesus would also speak in metaphors. So this is the hat I invite you to put on as I introduce a little bit about color theory. The color spectrum ranges from white to black, where white is the reflection of all colors and black is the absorption of all colors. White and black are color opposites, but they're theoretical complements. The universe, it is said, was born in absolute blackness with light, bright white at its core. We are made from light and dark, and within and among us is the whole range of colors. The color wheel seen here is made up of three primary colors and three secondary colors. The primary colors cannot be created. They exist in pure form. They are the, the whole range of possible hues can be combined with using the primary colors with black and white. Yellow, red, and blue are the primary colors. And combined, they make the secondary colors. So let's play a little bit with these. What would each of these colors taste like, feel like, and look like? You could, during this time, even write down these colors, yellow, red, blue, or any that appeal to you, and make a list of what comes to your mind when you think of these colors. You don't have to be a synesthete to imagine that colors have a language of their own. You don't even need to be a tetrachromat to do this. You just need to be willing to engage your imaginations. So let's go on a little color journey. Regardless of how bleak the world is, there is always an opportunity to stop and notice. My sister calls this beauty hunting. She does it with a camera, but we can also do it with our minds. What are the colors of my world? For starters, I love this man. <laughs> you know who that is? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I love the man sitting next to me so much. He is the God colors and so many of us. Not love many you. people have shoes like that. Yeah, I don't think so. I would have that would have kicked the outfit off perfectly. So in this class, I've been raised into an adult. I've grown up and I've come of age in ordinary life. I'm still growing up, and sometimes I do it kicking and screaming. This class is part of my palette. Let's call it the color yellow today. This is what Goethe says about uh, yellow. Sorry, George Schroth, if I my German's not great. Yellow. This is the color nearest the light. It extends itself alone and widely into the light space. 
In its highest purity, it always carries with it the nature of brightness and has a serene, gay, and softly exciting character. We find from experience again that yellow excited a warm and agreeable impression. Hence, in painting, it belongs to the illumined and emphatic side. This impression of warmth may be experienced in a very lively manner if we look at a landscape through a yellow glass, particularly on a gray winter's day, the eye is gladdened, the heart expanded and cheered, a glow seems at once to breathe toward us. What besides ordinary life then is yellow? Well, for me, sitting on my porch with the sun streaming in as it warms my legs, my dog's head in my lap, yellow is my 11-year-old coming up behind me with a hug. It is butter, grass-fed, Kerrygold butter, <laughs> softened to room temperature and spread over a piece of fresh bread that still has that crunchy outside and soft inside. Yellow is a Hafiz poem that gladdens my heart every time I read it. We don't pursue joy to bypass pain, but to help us hold it. Poetry is a way that I love to engage with the breadth of human creativity and emotion. And one of my favorite poets, Padre Gotuma, says poetry gives him spaces of belonging. This is the poem from I Heard God Laughing, a collection of Hafiz's poems. I have a thousand brilliant lies for the question, how are you? I have a thousand brilliant lies for the question, what is God? If you think the truth can be known from words, if you think the sun and the ocean can pass through the tiny opening called the mouth, someone should start laughing. Someone should start wildly laughing now. Mm. Yellow is God laughing. Yellow is Black Lives Matter and the human rights campaign. It is the smell of Copper Canyon daisies on my fingertips. You know, most of Jesus' teaching um, is about trying to bring into realization and reality the community of empowerment. And I think that, um, and I know I've said this before, but I think that Daramut Amuraku is absolutely correct when he says that Jesus probably himself never used the phrase kingdom of God we don't know what Jesus said, literally, because we don't have but one phrase of his preserved in the Aramaic language that he spoke. But we do know by watching Jesus' behavior and the stories that he told that what he was about was creating this community that was, very, was radically inclusive of everybody. And I think one of the saddest things that the church has done, and it did it for a variety of reasons, which I'm not going to go into uh, today. Maybe we'll do that next week. It created this notion that this empowering community, by calling it the kingdom of heaven, is not only something that is not here, but it is something that is off out there somewhere in the future after you die. So that the conventional belief came, came to be that after you die, there is some part of you that flits off and orbits Earth a couple times maybe to get its orientation and then makes a right turn and goes off to heaven. Unless you're liberal. Then you make a left you turn. Then you make a left turn mm -hmm. and go off in some other direction. And I just want to be clear, we don't go anywhere to be with God. I've heard people say that they pray, but their prayers don't leave the room. They can't, God isn't here, but God is here. We are in God. God is in us. And, and um, the whole of the universe is God concretized. I heard a story uh, once of a man and woman who were very much in love. They were celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary, and he gave her this beautifully boxed, wrapped box. It was pretty heavy, and when she opened it up, inside was a book, and the book was called You. And she looked at it, puzzled, and she said, what is this? And he said, <laughs> it's a book about you. For the last 25 years of our marriage, I've been writing down everything about you. So, and if you look in the back, you'll see it's indexed. Mm. 
So if there's ever anything you want to know about you, <laughs> all you have to do is go to the back of the book and look it up, and it will okay. tell you what you want to know about you. And she, was, of course, was heartbroken. Mm. And she said, how could you do this to me? How could you do this to us? Which is really disappointing to him because he was already working on a third, another volume for their 50th <laughs> anniversary called Us. Oh, gosh. But the point of the story is that this is largely what the church has done in its relationship to God. Yeah. We have said, uh, God, look, here's a book that contains all their thoughts about you. And we've indexed it and we've categorized it. And we have other books as well that we've written about you. Uh, you'll see if you read them that we have historical theology and biblical theology and systematic theology and doctrinal theology and so on. And God replies, but we don't hear, why have you done this to me? Why have you done this to our relationship? Hmm. When, we, when I was in seminary, we had a joke that not even Jesus could pass a course on Christology. <laughs> and um, so one of my professors came up with a story, if I can remember it correctly. Jesus comes home from school one day and shows God his report card. And God says, you flunked Christology? <laughs> and Jesus said, yeah, it was all that three-in-one, one-in-three stuff that confused me. I just couldn't get it. I got confused. So God says to us, don't you know that no idea about me is me? Why are you doing this to me? We were not created to develop beliefs about God. That's why fundamentalists were created. Trying to express who God is is trying to get the ocean in a thimble. Of course, we try. Mm -hmm. We need buckets to contain the living water. However, the history of religion is sadly one of people who constantly confuse the bucket for what's in it. I'm going to have more to say about that before we're done today, but you can't put the ocean into a thimble. Mm. But as my spiritual director said to me decades ago, you can put the thimble into the ocean. And that's what spiritual practice is about. Mm. So this is the, the water that we swim in today is trying to play with the colors yeah. and play with God a little bit. So what is blue? That's one of the other primary colors. There's an entire book devoted to the color blue called Bluets by Maggie Nelson. Called blue what? Bluets. Like sonnets, but bluets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she writes, similar to how Goethe wrote his uh, color theory book um, in these sections, one, two, three, and so on. She writes, and so I fell in love with a color, in this case, the color blue, as if falling under a spell, a spell I sought to stay under and get out from under in turns. The half circle of blinding turquoise ocean is this love's primal scene. That this blue exists makes my life a remarkable one just to have seen it, to have seen such beautiful things. But what kind of love is it really? Don't fool yourself and call it sublimity. Admit that you have stood in front of a little pile of powdered ultramarine pigment in a glass cup at a museum and felt a stinging desire. First, Bill, hold up your finger to stain your other finger, to stain your finger with it and then to stain the world. That's the color of my pants today too, ultramarine. I need one of these things that is in more uh, of a my flesh color. I like the blue. You stained your fingers with it. I use it to turn pages. You might want to dilute it and swim in it, to paint a virgin's robe with it. We love to contemplate blue, not because it advances to us, but because it draws us after it, wrote Goethe. And perhaps he is right. Blue draws us after it. This is the pursuit also of something so unholdable as God. Picasso, I don't even think I need to explain who Picasso is, um, spent three years chasing and wrestling and birthing the color blue in his paintings. It's called his blue period. It is the imagined color of a veil that wrapped the body of the infant Jesus as he escaped death on the back of a donkey who would grow up to bring so much yellow into the world and then die in a smear of red. 
Blue is as much the color of Coltrane's jazz as it is Bach's cello suites. It is as mournful as much as it is hopeful and deep. Blue is my husband, whose favorite color wraps me in his strong arms and makes me feel safe, like all can be right with the world. Blue is as ethereal and faint as it is inky and bottomless. It shimmers and it drowns. Blue invades a green swath of land along Texas highways from March to mid-April. Blue is the color of grief that stretches into a black hole but must eventually give way to light that begins anew the color spectrum. What must we do with our grief this season about not seeing our families this week or feeling powerless to solve all these problems? I keep this little bowl of stones nearby. It's a blue glass bowl with blue stones in it. And sometimes I hold these stones in my palm and I feel their coldness, their solidity. I can't bend it, I can't break it. And strangely, I'm warmed by that solidity. When blue flows through me, I can show up with it. I can show up with that serenity. I can trust that the work of change is slow, sometimes painful, but always worth it. Blue reminds me to breathe. What does blue look like in you? Well, <clears throat> blue looks like several things to me. It is, by the way, my favorite color. The whole range of blue is my favorite color. I mean, you pick any one of them, and I love yeah, blue. I love, I love blue. Yeah. I love the color of your pants. <laughs> I love that blue. Yeah. That blue. I love this. And, and, and by the way, um, Sherry and I had uh, this amazing experience with Picasso. Sherry is the one in our marriage who has the travel gene, and thank God has made it possible for us to have such wonderful trips. We went to the Picasso Museum in Paris. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And I learned there, all I knew about Picasso was he did these wild, impressionistic, cubit things that I didn't understand. He could do pictures like this. He could actually, and he did this, I think, with his brother or with some street people. He could take a pencil and a piece of paper and draw a picture of you that looked like a Polaroid painting. <laughs> I mean, really. He's uh, classically trained artists. I mean, he's, it's amazing. Yeah. And then we went to the Barcelona Museum, in, I mean, to the Picasso Museum in Barcelona, and they were having a, a particular uh, exposition of Picasso's on his obsession with painting the bull over and over and mm -hmm. over and over. And it showed how his painting of the particular scene evolved from something like you're seeing on the screen now to something that was just a few bold strokes. But you could see this kind of thing in that. Yeah. And you could see that in this. It was just, it was like a religious experience. It is. See that, yeah. that sort of thing. He was, he was amazing. Blue's a restful color for me. It's restorative. Um, it also evokes a kind of melancholy in me. I think that's why we say I'm blue today. I'm down. I'm feeling blue. I think that when I think, as I said earlier, about this Thanksgiving of not spending it with extended family for the first time that I can ever remember. And yet, I'm so grateful that all of us in our separate places are, are healthy uh, blue captures for me a sense of sadness about the divisiveness in our country and our church, and also a sense of hope about the future. I was, um, I, I'm just ongoingly astounded by, by people who, for some reason, don't feel that it's a responsible thing to wear a mask, and I was found this week by a prayer written by the Reverend Richard Bott, who is the moderator of the Presbyterian Church of Canada. And I want to read it to you. You can read along with me. It's called A Prayer for Putting on a Face Mask. Creator God, as I prepare to go into the world, help me to see the sacramental nature of wearing this cloth. Let it be a tangible and visible way of living love for my neighbors as I love myself. Christ Jesus, since my lips will be covered, uncover my heart, that people would see my smile and the crinkles around my eyes. Since my voice may be muffled, help me speak clearly, not only with words, but with my actions. Holy Spirit, as the elastic touches my ears, 
Remind me to listen carefully and daringly to all those I meet. May this simple piece of cloth be shield and banner, and may each breath that it holds be filled with your love. This has all the colors in it. The color of my heart, the smile around your eyes. I, I, this idea about learning to listen in this time. This is hard for, I think of my dad who wears hearing aids and has, uh, some, has to use people's lips also sometimes to hear, hear what we're saying and how difficult that can be when our faces are covered. Mm -hmm. What do kids see in our eyes? What do kids see there when, 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 our, when our faces are covered? So we're learning in some ways, new ways of communicating. My son's favorite color is red. <laughs> and as the color evokes, he is very passionate about it. He wears something red nearly every day and lets me buy him only red shoes. I asked him what red tastes like the other day and he said, like a party in my mouth. This is an ode to red by Caleb, who is 11 years old. I also put this up. Um, Joseph Albers, this wonderful uh, color theorist, did all these beautiful prints about how colors interact with each other. And I have two of the books that range through the whole spectrum. So a little homage to red. Red looks like a cardinal singing its song outside my window. It smells like strawberries, raspberries, and velvet. It sounds like a peaceful wind flowing through a meadow. It tastes like love. In my body, it feels like waves of energy pouring through my veins. That's from Caleb, <laughs> who's in the tree with a red shirt on. And Goethe on red wrote, the effect of this color is as peculiar as its nature. It conveys an impression of gravity and dignity and at the same time, grace and attractiveness. There are reptiles whose entire worlds are infrared gardens illumined by heat when what we might see are shades of green. To consider red more seriously, we cannot ignore Jesus, the symbol of the sacred heart, the color of the cost of speaking against the establishment. This does not happen without great risk. Red is a color of unbelonging for stretching the boundaries wide, but it's also the potential for a new kind of belonging. It is, I believe, the color of the community that we call beloved. Barbara Holmes wrote, we are one and our wars and racial divisions cannot defeat the wholeness that lies just below the horizon of human awareness. The diversity that we strive for in the community called Beloved may well be the matrix of the universe. It is not a function of human effort or justice. It is just the sea that we swim in. The question becomes then, in which direction will we swim? Water flows towards union, towards the ocean. This union is not to be confused with sameness, but toward the ocean whose many waves, each one different from the other, work as one. Red is the color of potentiality, of longing, of quantum theory that supports the basis of connection at the heart and the universe in concluding once two quantum entities have interacted with each other, they retain the power to influence each other no matter how widely they might separate. Despite our histories, despite our separateness, we are intertwined. Disconnection is actually not an option. Red is the color of connection. This is true in electrical work as well. The red wire is the hot one that lights up the light bulb. The universe will not ultimately sanction our divisions and the cosmos groans for the restorative acts of humankind. The beloved community is situated in these quantum realms that are already connected and it calls forth our participation. Red is that groaning sound, the birthing of a new world order. Contemplate these colors in your life. What do they say to you? What do they say about you? And are you living into them as boldly as you can? You know, I would, I would affirm everything that you said and add to it that, that red reminds me, as you said, about blood flowing. And a way that I would say that it's, it's about life and death issues. Mm. 
And I think, for example, of all the blood shed over the centuries, much of it at the blessing or instigation of various religions, mm -hmm. um, I believe that religion can have a powerful healing capacity for people. That's its primary meaning, to bind together, to bring mm -hmm. together the separated. So the way Paul Tillich defined love. Love is that which seeks to reunite that which has gotten separated, but mm -hmm. religion can also be powerfully divisive. Now, it won't come as a surprise to anybody who comes to ordinary life mm -hmm. that my desire is to forever be pushing the edge of the envelope. We are already physically living in the space between the no longer and the not yet. And we're going to talk more about that, I think, next week. Mm -hmm. uh, if I can get my head around what I want to say. But I'm not sure that we're living there psychically. I'm not sure we're living there mentally, spiritually. I think that there's a lot of us that still long for that what was and want to take bits and pieces of it with us. But we've got to keep going. We are in the no longer. We're not yet to the not yet. Um, but we, that's where we have to live out our lives, in the reality of what is. And that means going beyond where we are in our thinking and spiritual constructing. Christianity has become largely about distinguishing itself from others. And I'm saying, and I'm also saying that I got this idea from Jesus, that our goal is to stand in radical solidarity with everyone else and with all that is. God is about solidarity and not judgment. The only thing Jesus excluded was exclusion itself. Mm. Why, would a God, why would not a God who is worthy of that label not care about all of God's children? Does God have favorites? That makes for a very, very unhappy family. I tell all of my kids they're my favorite. That's <laughs> true. Sometimes on some days, one is more my favorite than the other. And they are all my favorite. In 1637, the philosopher Rene Descartes studied rainbows. He is the same philosopher who brought us and solidified this path of mind-body dualism. He said that the mind is out there and the body is irrelevant. He kind of uh, ignited this idea of the mechanistic universe, that the universe is a machine and nature is here for us to use. What are we looking at? This is his diagram. It's been enhanced with color of how one experiences a rainbow. The light hits the water droplet and then reveals color to the human eye. So. A is the light, B is the water droplet, and it draws a line towards the human eye, and then we experience color. Can I say something? Yes, of course you may. So uh, this will really blow, blow your mind. Uh, mm -hmm. Captain Bill Nogos, my friend who's an airline pilot, triple sevens, says that actually when you see a rainbow from the perspective of an airplane, it doesn't go from the earth to the earth. Yeah. It's a perfect circle. It's a circle. So Rene Descartes didn't know that yet, right? Yeah. Our, our understanding of rainbows got improved upon. And here's the other thing that to me is mind blowing. Rainbows are all the time everywhere. We just can't always see them because we can't always see the way that the light is interacting with the water. You know when you spray a hose and a rainbow it yeah. shows up? So, Someone asked me the other day, well, does a rainbow really have a beginning and the end? No, it doesn't. It's all the time everywhere. It's a circle. And they're all and, the time everywhere up there. And how we attune our eyes, are able, or are able to attune our eyes So you're it. telling me that if I got in a, my airplane, which is yet to be delivered. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, the money really goes to buying Bill the airplane this so year. So if I got in my airplane uh, and flew up, I would look down to see rainbows? It depends on how the light interacts okay. with moisture. Wow. So light is always interacting with moisture. Okay. And, and sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't. Sometimes it presents itself to us and sometimes it doesn't. 
And we stand in awe of rainbows. I, I, I love them. When they come in the sky, usually around that sort of late afternoon time when the sun can point at the moisture in the air just after a rainstorm, I still call my kids outside, guys, 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 there's a rainbow. And we all gather and stand in awe for a minute. It's, they're awesome. Yeah. Nature pleasures us in this way with its color, with its play of light. Anyway, I'm totally off script, but <laughs> Descartes gave us this, this, understand, this first understanding of rainbows. And we have um, in our house a little rainbow maker in our window, one of those copper coils that is attached to a prism that spins around mm -hmm. when the light hits it. It can only work when the sun hits it. And so it must interact with light in order to shed colors. And so we have this rainbow that kind of floats around our living room in I the afternoons. I love it. The cats I love it. go crazy with it. Do they? <laughs> Ours, I, I, my cat might be getting too old and lazy, I'm not sure. But um, so color is produced by an object's interaction with the light. In this way, light participates in how the object expresses itself. Our little rainbow maker won't work with anything but the sun. If you've ever woken up before dawn, as I did the other day, and watched your room gradually lighten, you notice that it goes from shades of gray. So when there's no light, our room is in shades of gray. There is no color. But as it lightens, it, it gradually transitions to shades of blue, which is the color of my room, like six, seven, eight, 20 different shades of blue. And then my world fills with color as the light comes. So when we see color, what is it that we are actually experiencing? 300 years after Descartes, another philosopher, Owen Barfield, wrote about rainbows. Look at the rainbow, he writes. While it lasts, it is or appears to be a great arc of many colors occupying a position out there in space. And now before it fades, recollect all you have ever been told about the rainbow and its causes and ask yourself the question, is it really there? You know from memory that if you walk to the place where the rainbow ends or seems to end, it would certainly not be there. In a word, reflection will assure you that the rainbow is the outcome of the sun, the raindrops, and how you see. I don't really wanna get bogged down with philosophy and perceptions of reality, what's real and not real. But the takeaway here is that you experience and interpret colors and light. They aren't tangible. You can't capture them in a jar, just as you can't capture the ocean in a thimble. They are expressions of the play between the light and your eye. Most creatures experience colors differently. This is so fascinating to me because this has the evolution of the eyeball. What I call yellow, an insect might call ultraviolet. Many insects live in an ultraviolet garden. I guess what I'm trying to say is that how you experience colors and how you let them move through you is unique to you. You experience the rainbow differently than I do. You experience Bill's tie-dye differently than I do. You embody the rainbow differently than I do. It's no wonder that the rainbow has become the symbol of inclusion and diversity in, in, in our society. It's because the many colors must always interact in order to create it. I don't wanna make a case here for false equivalencies. There are good people on both sides type of logic. I firmly believe that our colors are meant to push the arc toward more kindness, more mercy, and more compassion. There is pain. There's always going to be pain. And just when it seems the bleakest, you have to remember that there's no such thing as absolute darkness anywhere in the universe. It's as Leonard Cohen saying, there is a crack, a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. Where there is light, there is color, and our colors are meant to heal, meant to be a balm. Jesus was neither a scientist nor a philosopher, but he innately knew this about colors. So I'm going to take this now uh, to um, a point that nobody could have guessed. Towards a daily spiritual. Nobody could have, no, good, nobody could have guessed. <laughs> yeah. You know what this is? 
This is a badger. <laughs> a badger gets its name from that white space on the top of its head that looks kind of like a badge. It is a tenacious hunter and it will harry its prey until it gets what we Oh, what that's wants. like my youngest child. <laughs> Absolutely. They come equipped knowing how to do this. That's where the verb that we have in our language to badger somebody comes from. It comes from this animal. You pester somebody till you get what you want. I'm so glad to know my son's spirit animal, really. I am. This is his spirit animal. Thank okay. you for that. <laughs> and closely related to the badger is this guy. And this is a weasel. And this animal is skilled in getting out of tight places. And this is where we get the phrase to weasel out of something. Mm -hmm. Okay? I love this sort of stuff. You know, weasel words are words that we use when we want to avoid saying, um, what we really mean or doing something that we, we don't want to do. Now, Holly's already confessed to the fact that she's been badgered. Any parent has, anybody who's a parent has ever been badgered. I think children come equipped <laughs> with this ability to know how to just nag the bejesus Josh is at home going, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And we all know how to weasel out of things. And what weasel words to say to get out of doing something we don't want to do. You ready? I'm ready. So I badger you about having a daily spiritual practice. And I wonder if you somehow weasel out of it. This is getting a laugh from William. <laughs> yes. This is good. <laughs> So just to be clear, what you've heard today is kind of a reflection of the spiritual practice that Holly and I did on this passage from the Sermon on the Mount. And also to be clear, a daily practice is that which we habitually enter into with our whole heart, in which we assume the inner stance that offers the least resistance to our being overtaken by the experience of sacred mystery, which we are powerless by our own efforts to obtain. Now, you're probably going to have to live with that sentence for a while. But once you do, it will become clear to you. A daily practice is that which we habitually, habitually, that means daily, at least, enter into with our whole heart, that means you're not being distracted by something else, in which we assume the inner stance that offers the least resistance to our being overtaken by the experience of sacred mystery, which we are powerless by our own efforts to obtain. Hmm. Color needs light to show itself. Absolutely. So I'll give you a couple of examples. People who are in love with each other, lovers, they can't make their moments of oceanic happiness or oneness happen, but they can assume a stance that will allow that physical and, and, and emotional uh, experience to, to rise up between them and, and within them. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. A poet cannot make a poem happen, but the poet can put herself or himself in a stance that allows the poem to give, to, to find expression through that person. Now, the, the poet must know poetry and must have some skill in creating poetry. Uh, that goes without saying. That's the head part of spiritual practice. But then the heart part is just being quiet and still and paying attention, seeing what colors show up, seeing what's on the palette, seeing what, what, what you want to paint with it. That's the way that, that I would put that. 
So just to say it again, a daily practice is that which we enter habitually enter into with our whole heart in which we assume the inner stance that offers the least resistance to our being overtaken by the experience of sacred mystery, which we are powerless by our own efforts to obtain. Okay? So once again, this is a badger. <laughs> I'm badgering you. <laughs> and this is also a badger. And Jesus is badgering us about this community of empowerment. And it's a badgering that calls us, invites us to, to, to dismantle the systems of injustice that we have, mm -hmm. to dismantle the way things have been, the powers and the principalities, as Paul calls them, and to create something new. I think that we, um, we are so easily tempted and fall into the temptation of shaping the teachings of Jesus into forms that fit us. Mm. Uh, and that's the big danger of religion is that we put God into our story rather than putting ourselves and living our values into God's stories. Most of the stories of Jesus are designed to upset the social order. What we call the parable of the Good Samaritan is an excellent example of this sort of thing. It was designed to break things apart and to include everybody. Jesus was primarily committed to wisdom teaching. And wisdom teaching's primary goal is to awaken, and it comes directly from Jewish tradition. Jesus was a Jewish mystic. And what was different about Jesus was that he turned this tradition in for in, as we will see next week. So in this teaching today, Jesus is saying, tell others the things I teach you. Do it openly. Do it without fear. Let them see the light of your mind. Don't try to hide it. Do not be afraid to make public what is in your heart. Now, this can cause trouble especially in the church. It's not fun to call attention to the fact that the church has betrayed the teaching of Jesus. For the most part, the church has ended up worshiping Jesus and arguing about the right way to do things. Jesus never taught anything like that. Jesus never, ever, ever, ever said, worship me. What he said was, follow me. And to follow Jesus is a lifestyle, and it's a lifestyle that is nonviolent and sharing and loving. And sadly, organized religion makes it possible to sidestep that claim because we can live and do live in a culture that's greedy, warlike, racist, selfish, and still hold it that it's a Christian nation. The world is in desperate need of colorful prophets. <laughs> right mm -hmm. and that's what you're called to be that's what I'm called to be and what are needed are voices that can move us in that direction our current political conversation if you could call it that is about people who define themselves by what they're not whose identity revolves around what they're against that's the DNA of, of half of Christianity Protestantism, protest, dissent, and yet once the Protestants got in charge, it was clear they didn't have a clue what they were doing. What Protestants were good at and are good at to this very moment is splitting. The call of Jesus is for us to be and become enlightened, and after that, to light up the world. That's the original meaning of salvation. People are to be saved not from their sins, but from the bondage of living in the dark. Salvation was not about going to heaven when you die, but about being set free to live in the light of God's colorful love and justice in this world. So do we still live in dark times? Are there still Pharaohs and Herods and Caesars who seek to extinguish the light? Is Jesus in fact the light of the world? Most people, I bet, are not aware that the real meaning of the word salvation is to rescue from darkness. 
So you're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your life by opening up to others. You'll prompt other people to open up to God. I think Jesus badgered people about this. I think he did it uh, persistently with patience and love. So I'm going I'm to pester you, badger you with love and hope. Have a practice. Hmm. Memorize what a daily spiritual practice is. Have a practice so that we, in our own way, with our own talents and our own skills, can bring God colors to the world. Have a practice. Have a practice so that the world doesn't change you. And I'm badgering you about this. I'm doing it lovingly, but I'm badgering, and I'm saying, don't weasel out. <laughs> You're here to bring out the God colors. We'll use this benediction again. Alleluia, Jesus declared us salt and light. May we season the world with love and dispel the darkness of injustice. Amen. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. Have a good Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs>